Welcome to the Dipshit Files, episode 43. I'm Mr. Scriptkeeper. And I'm Mrs. Scriptkeeper. And this week we have a very big dipshit. Yeah. He's a family yeah. annihilator. Yes, he kills and, his family. Yes, and it's got a weird connection to Disney. Yep. And I'm pretty sure it's Roy Disney's fault. <laughs> uh, oh, jeez. But we're going to open up another dipshit file, and uh, we ask you to join us as yeah. we look into the Tote family murders. Disney, to some, is a money-hungry conglomerate that is dedicated to price-gouging the general population by using nostalgia as a weapon. No, they're just mom pop. To others, it's their childhood and the first media that they watched that catered to them directly, mm-hmm. making shows, parks, and even merchandise into places of their childhood that they couldn't possibly bear to pass up making little chitrins the center of the economy and and to others still it's just the name of a company who makes movies and runs the most successful theme parks of all time nothing more nothing less so regardless of what you think disney is as a whole you most likely don't associate disney with murder suicide abuse and death especially because their executives have paid a lot of money to make sure any stories about these subjects are pushed down yeah why else do you think you never hear about the murders that have occurred in Disney parks? Mm-hmm. How many times have people taken their own lives in hotels and the various attacks that have happened to the parks worldwide? Zero times, I think, is what the correct answer is. <laughs> How do these incredibly newsworthy situations seem to fly under the radar? Money. Disney is supposed to be the cleanest, safest, happiest place on Earth. And if the public knew how dark their history gets how tainted these places are and how incredibly unsafe everyone is in them. Oh, shit. Well, the public wouldn't visit. Now, would they? I don't know, but we're going to get a visit from Disney's lawyers pretty quickly. (laughs) And if they wouldn't visit, they won't bring their kids. Mm. And if they don't bring their kids, then who's going to buy the merchandise they place into the parks every day? That's true. You know, wife, I will say Disney's very clean. Get off your high horse, lady. I remember. Very clean. Well, it's been 20 plus. Very clean. And 20, the churros are delicious. 20 plus years since I've been there, so I don't know. But I remember it being very clean. It's very clean. Maybe evil, but clean. In order to make sure the Disney brand is synonymous with childhood and therefore never dies, based simply on nostalgia alone, it's imperative that people don't know and don't learn about the darker parts of Disney's history. Hey, wife. Hmm. It's very clean. <laughs> From the murders to the abuse, but today we're going to be doing just that. Talking about the darkest day in Disney history to date. Because today, we're going to be talking about the annihilation of the Tote family. Which took place in the town established by Disney just minutes away from Disney World. Mm. Celebration, Florida. Before we get into today's dipshit, let's talk about the city that Disney built. (laughs) Celebration, Florida. The happiest place on earth. (laughs) That's the tagline for Disney parks scattered around the world. The small world. When envisioning the first park, Disneyland, Walt Disney wanted to hearken back to yesteryear, to simpler times where people were kinder and the world seemed less aggressive. Right. Remember that time in American history when we just hugged shit out? We just hugged it out. He envisioned a world that was straight out of the movies he'd grown up with. And much cleaner. (laughs) 
freshly manicured lawns, clean, white picket fences, clean, and where everyone knew their neighbors. Humans are the dirty part. This idea led to the creation of Main Street USA. Minus the violence, sex, corruption, and drugs. A portion of the parks that celebrate pure Americana and the idea of the American dream. Shit's looking like a fever dream lately. Upon entering Disneyland, you're welcomed into this idealized version of a town square that leads to a road lined with storefronts and shops. The smell of fresh baked goods fills the streets, intentionally created from hidden locations to trigger comfort in your desire for a sweet treat. The very clean streets. Paid actors sit on the stoops of the shops and apartment building facades to talk kindly to guests. They're as very if, well manicured people. As if they were your really your neighbors. Clean neighbors. There's actually a city hall where guest relations is located. And there's no politicians in it because fuck politicians, right? Here, guests can lodge their complaints and get commemorative pins for their birthdays. And there are multiple forms of transportation from the trolley to the horse-drawn carriages and more. It's basically a movie set come to life. Mm -hmm. The small strip of land is supposed to place park goers into an altered state of being and let them know that they've walked out of the present and into a time where the world isn't as harsh as it seems to be. That's much cleaner. There are no car accidents. There's no road rage. And when people ask how you're doing, mm -hmm. they actually care to hear the answer. Bullshit. People are nicer here and everything just feels comfortable and safe. Certainly safer than an actual street in any real life town. Which is very dirty. It's supposed to put the average person into an almost almost sitcom-like existence in a place of abject comfort because nothing bad could ever happen here. Mm. And on the off chance it does, that bad thing is immediately removed by security personnel never to be spoken of again. Mm -hmm. The idealized version of a town was Walt's biggest dream. Well, Mr. Disney, what's it like to be a man who's accomplished all his biggest dreams? Oh, well, young man, I haven't accomplished my biggest dream. Really? What's your biggest dream? Well, I wanted to create with my bare hands the greatest city ever made. Oh, well, that's really admirable. But then destroy it all while wearing a giant mech suit. Wait, what? I'm gonna fuck it up, but they don't have the technology today, so they're gonna freeze my head. Wait, what the fuck? Oh, you get rich and crazy like me, you like to build things beautiful to destroy them. Oh, shit. Now, it really puts a lead back in your pencil. Yikes. Beyond the fortune from the movies and beyond creating the greatest theme park, in the world, he wanted to make this Main Street USA into reality. He wanted to create a town that was perfect, as lovely as it was safe, just like the one he created in his theme park. However, as you are almost likely aware, he never got to do that. Right. When Walt died on December 15, 1966, at the age of 65, he left the company in somewhat of a state of flux. He had projects in the works like Disney World, the largest theme park undertaking any company had ever done. And without him at the helm, people kind of floundered. Especially with Roy Disney at the helm. Time, <laughs> time suckers know. It was a dangerous time. Uh, so much of the Disney company had been Walt thinking and dreaming up ideas that seemed impossible and then making them happen. Mm -hmm. He would walk into the Disney studios with an idea, something that no one had ever done, and tasked his employees with finding a way to make it work. Mm -hmm. All right, you smart pieces of shit. I want my theme park to be futuristic as fuck. Give me some future things. Uh, yeah, what did you want, Mr. Well, Disney? I want flying cars. Uh, how do we do that? I'm just a genius that comes up with these things. You dummies figure it out. I don't think it's possible. Well, do you have any other ideas, sir? Yeah, how about hoverboards for dogs? Okay. His creativity was the sole driving force, and no one else in the company had any idea what should be done after his passing. Freeze his head. The Florida Project, also known as Disney World, was finished by Walt's brother, Roy Disney. Dope. 
and was a massive success. However, he too would pass the same year Uh, of a stroke, leaving the company once again in a state of flux. We need an eccentric rich asshole stat. This time with no Disney at the wheel. Jesus. For several years after Imagineers, executives, and people in the company simply worked on projects that Disney had talked to them about before he passed. All right, Mouse Janiers. All right, what are you guys working on? I'm working on Walt Disney Space Program. Oh yeah, Mouse X, how's that doing? I feel like a mouse-shaped rocket isn't really working. Right, well, he really loved that. Now, what about you? What are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a eugenics program that Mr. Oh. Disney was really into. Okay, yeah, let's keep that one quiet. All right. Yeah, what about you there? Oh, me? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just working on a multi-decade program to get the American public to eat bugs. Oh, they're never going to do that. They will if we put Arby's sauce on them. Okay, maybe. Their priority became the things that they knew Walt had been interested in. Things that he would be passionate about. Eat the bugs. Trying to recreate the magic that seemed to come effortlessly to him. Everyone at the company was looking through their notes, trying to find out what Disney wanted them to do. Freeze his head. Why he would have wanted them to do it. World domination. And how to make it work. Copious amounts of nerds. One of the biggest projects to follow Walt's passing was the completion of Disney World, which was a smashing success. Disney had worked on the project himself before his passing. However, after it opened to rave reviews, the focus shifted to what do we do next? Got to get Mickey Mouse on that fucking moon. How can we make this better? How can we improve what Walt set in motion? Free drugs. The company mulled over these questions as attendance grew at the park, but they couldn't quite make up their minds. The company already had almost 5,000 acres of land bought outside the park for some sort of possible expansion, but they didn't know what they should do with it. Gator farm. Should they make it into another land or Gator land. make it into more hotels for the park? Gator hotel. When asked what would Disney do, the idea of a Disney-owned and operated town was pitched, like Main Street USA. Come live inside the company. The town would be created with the idea of hearkening back to a simpler time. When the wild roller coasters roamed the Utilizing a concept known as urbanism, which focused on human-scale designs. Hive mind. The emphasis would be establishing community where people would talk to their neighbors and feel comfortable walking to and fro. The houses would be manicured with lush gardens, large porches, and beautiful trees. Sounds perfect. The homes themselves wouldn't be too gaudy. In fact, they would be reminiscent of older designs. It's just caves. The trees would have speakers inside of them, (laughs) stealthily hidden, so every morning, come rain or shine, the birds would sing. Yeah, the praises of Lord Mickey Mouse. During the fall, dry leaves would be shipped and placed on the streets, giving the look and feel of autumn. Weird. The streets were designed to encourage residents to walk, day or night. And the town had plenty of amenities, like its own hospital, library, preschool, and more. Here's our local Soylent Green Processing Center. That's sweet. What's in that? Well, anyway, this is the Mickey Mouse re-education camp. School, school, I mean school. During the winter... The town would pump snow out onto the streets, which would, of course, melt quickly in the Florida heat. And they would also place an ice rink in the town square so the residents could skate to their heart's content. My heart is content just thinking about it. Celebration Florida was Disney's attempt at Main Street USA and gave Disney lovers the chance to practically live in a real-life Disney park, seeing as it was just six minutes away by car. Ten if you went by Steamboat Willie. I don't know. I'm sorry. It was a Disney lover's paradise, but that doesn't mean 
saying it wasn't without criticism. Yeah, like, what the fuck are you weirdos doing? Criticism surrounding the town called out how false and manufactured this place seemed. How you liking living in the Disney City? Well, it's pretty good, but having Mickey Mouse ears on all the squirrels and birds is kind of off-putting. You know, I know the guy that stapled those on. Oh, it's staples. I thought it was glue. Like, you think the glue would be more humane, but it's really not. Just stapled that shit on. It's the squirrel's fault for being born on Disney property. Oh, yeah, right. They cited movies like The Truman Show and Stepford Wives and Edward Scissorhands as commentaries about towns such as this focused on the idea of perfection. Creepy. Without realizing that to be human is to be flawed. We're good at it. And many people found it more unsettling than whimsical. Fuck this The idea of a company automating birds to wake up its residents, <laughs> dousing the residents in fake snow to simulate winter, all of it came across as somewhat well, sinister rather than whimsical. There's probably like 50 Disney cities today, I'm just saying. So despite the backlash, thousands of people moved to Celebration with the hope for a truly idyllic place to live and raise their families. Welcome, citizens, to the first town hall here in Celebration, the Disney City. Now, is there anything we haven't thought of that you guys would like to see? Oh, oh. Yeah, you, you, sir, the one dressed in full Monterey Jack from Chippendale's Rescue Ranger Regalia. Yeah, uh, I noticed that you guys stapled mouse ears to my dog. Yeah, all animals must have the mouse ears. Right, well, you also stapled them to my baby. Yeah, all children under three have to have the mouse ears. What? It's in your contract. Look at your contract. But just because you dress up a town to look perfect doesn't mean nothing bad will happen there. Above everything else, this was a place that was dreamt up by a man, brought to life by a corporation, and was meant to sell an idea back to people in the hopes that it becomes financially lucrative. <laughs> However, the premise of this town was never going to work because it simply wasn't the reality. There go my dreams. It was all a facade meant to trick people into thinking they could buy peace of mind, and it all came crashing down when a resident of their own picturesque community killed his entire family and lived with their dead bodies for two weeks yeah. in January of 2019. Damn. And now it's time to learn about our dipshit and the sad story of the Tote family murders. Yeah. The story of what happened to the Tote family in 2020 begins years before Celebration was even created and before Anthony was born. It begins with his father, Robert Tote. Robert Tote was a well-to-do man who worked as a teacher in Pennsylvania. He was well-liked in his community, and because of his charisma and charitable nature, people thought the world of him. Bob Tote. He exuded an, a confidence that made others trust him easily and... Why wouldn't you trust a man who has dedicated his life to helping special needs children? Robert's reputation in the community led him to meeting and later marrying Tony's mother, Loretta, who huh. went on to give him beautiful, healthy children. Maybe not in the head. Loretta loved her husband and her children, and when Robert spoke about going back to school in order to further his education, Loretta supported him without question. She was more than happy to support whatever endeavors he wanted to pursue, and felt honored at the idea that he wanted to make their already lovely life better. Unbeknownst to her, though, Robert wasn't actually going back to school and taking night classes. He was secretly living a double life. At some point, Robert, approaching middle age with a wife and children, had met a 17-year-old nurse. Yikes. She was young and vibrant, and Robert was immediately taken with her. Yikes. She was carefree, given that she was a child, right. <laughs> not an adult. That is how you describe a child. Right. Well, when he was with her, he didn't have to worry about his kids. He didn't have to worry about bills. She was fun and not like his wife, who was con consistently worrying about 
the children, needing money and taking care of the household while he was at work. Right. Boring shit. The woman, the younger woman, didn't care about those things. She was just fun. And like a lot of men his age, Robert wanted an escape. He wanted to feel young again, as he did prior to all of his quote unquote responsibilities. Right. He started seeing her romantically, leaving his wife and kids for considerable periods of time in order to be with this teenager. Saying things like he was starting to take night classes at a local college or he was taking a short trip for work and Loretta had no idea. Mm-hmm. This wasn't a fling or a relationship based on sexual impulse and fun, though. Robert actually grew to love his mistress and had even gone as far as to propose to her, despite the fact that, well, he was still married. If you were to ask anyone who knew him and Loretta, they would say the marriage was a happy one. Robert had even met his mistress's family and set a date for their wedding, all while his wife was at home, waiting dutifully for him to return from his night classes. Through the affair, Robert had grown completely dissatisfied with his wife and children and the life he had built for himself. It seemed as if his wife was the only thing getting in the way of his happiness. And if his wife were out of the picture, he'd be able to do what he really wanted. Naked yoga in the living room. With that notion in the back of his mind, Robert began to wonder if he could just get his wife out of the picture. Right. This led him to hiring someone to get her out of the way for him. Hired a hitman, okay. Having worked with the young and disenfranchised people who tended to have a harder time later on in life, he quickly found two people who were more than willing to kill his wife. He advised them of the plan he had made on one of the nights where he was supposedly at school. When his children were sleeping, these two men would enter his wife's bedroom, rough her up her a little bit, and then shoot her in the head, killing her. The plan was to make it look like a robbery gone wrong. After they had killed his wife, Robert would come back home from class as usual. He'd find her body, and then he'd call the police. Hmm. I mean, it was practically foolproof, right? These kind of things always work out perfect. No? Well, Robert gave the men the exact location of the house and specified exactly what room Loretta would be sleeping in. And the geniuses went and shot the neighbors. And then he still had to pay for it. And then left for his class that night as if nothing was wrong. Soon enough his wife would be dead and the cops would think it was a robbery gone wrong and he could marry the teenager that he'd been dating. Yikes. If people thought something was amiss, he would simply say he was in mourning and they'd leave him be. That's These a really weird, wily e. Coyote kind I know, of plan. I know. Uh, he would, no one would ever expect that he was capable of this atrocity and he'd get to marry his mistress without anyone knowing the truth. That's the plan. However, that is not what happened because despite being beaten and then shot in the face by the men that Robert had hired Loretta survived. After being shot in the head. She'd been shot point blank in the head. But she was still alive and able to get help. Wow. Her memory was hazy. And she lost her eye. However, she lived through the horrendous ordeal. With only vague memories of two men assaulting her and knocking her out. Hmm. The cops were also quick to put two and two together. And when Robert gave his alibi of being at school that night. They did their due diligence, only to find that he hadn't actually been taking any classes at all at that time. Mm -hmm. After that, his double life was exposed, leading the cops to arrest him for conspiracy to commit murder. Unfortunately, Loretta wasn't the only victim of his father's selfishness, because Anthony, Robert's son, Mm -hmm. woke up during the attack, and he went to see what was going on. He was greeted by the horrific sight of two men assaulting his mother while she was in bed. Tony recalled how these men looked, 
what they did, and when one saw him standing in the hallway, the man walked over, picked him up, and placed him back in his room because they hadn't been paid to kill a child, according to Robert. This event changed Tony forever. Watching the violent assault on his mother absolutely traumatized him and left him with emotional scars that would never be healed. He watched the man his father paid to kill his mother attack her. He had to testify as to what he saw and later watched his mother come to terms with the fact that the man she loved and trusted had been the one to do this to her. His father's impact on his life wouldn't truly be felt, though, until January of 2020 when Tony revealed to the world how much he took after him. Fuck, there's also the account of them genes. There's a few of them genes in old Tony. (laughs) Poor little Tony. After his father was sentenced to prison for murder for hire of his wife, Anthony became exactly like the community he would choose to live in. A nice and friendly facade of the all-American dream that covers a much darker dangerous truth. If you were to ask anyone who knew Tony growing up, they would say he was a really great guy. He was described by his teachers and peers as good-natured and friendly without a mean bone in his body. He never had any issues with anyone and always had time to tutor and help his classmates. He was on the honor roll, and he was incredibly well-mannered. His peers loved him, too. In his junior and senior years of high school, he was voted class president. In addition to this, he was also a fantastic soccer player and went on to play all four years. He just seemed like the kid next door who always wanted to help. He worked hard and treated everyone with respect. The kid that everything seemed to come to easily and who always wanted to do what was right. At the end of his senior year, he was voted most likely to succeed by his classmates and to everyone around him, it would seem that that was the case. But Tony didn't do it all on his own. In high school, he met the woman who he would later marry and start his family with. Megan, just like Tony, was truly loved by her community. Tony was a people person who was always in the spotlight, whether it be sports, student government, or academics. But Megan, Megan was a calmer presence, someone who perfectly balanced Tony. Interviews with their peers would paint Tony as a bit more boisterous in his life, always humble bragging about his accomplishments, whereas Megan was much easier to talk to, always willing to lend an ear and help you with whatever you had going on. She was just as accomplished as Tony, equally as popular, and had a real musical talent. However, she was better known for how she made people feel. Her peers would describe her as calming and positive, She would ease her friend's worries with a look or a smile and never asked for anything in return. Friends found her nurturing and motherly and felt like any issue they had could be resolved through talking to her. When Megan and Tony got together, everyone saw them as the perfect couple. They complimented each other very well, with Megan's quiet, calming presence offsetting Tony's more boisterous antics and vice versa. Tony and Megan nurtured their relationship throughout the years, deciding to go to college together, and then later, they got married. In college, the couple continued their reputation for being perfect, with multiple classmates citing them as an amazing couple. One classmate in particular recalled the feeling that they had it all figured out and how calming it was to be around them, especially when they were going through their own crisis. When Tony and Megan graduated, they decided to open a chiropractic clinic in Colchester, Connecticut, called Family Physical Therapy. 
Through this clinic, Tony gained an even greater reputation in his community than he had in high school. Patients would arrive at their clinic stressed after months of misdiagnosis, thousands of dollars spent in the process, and in the span of what seemed like just a few minutes, Tony would diagnose and help them. Tony would listen to his patients in a way other doctors didn't, letting them know he cared about their health and that he was going to work to help them find out what was wrong. His patients loved him. He became sort of a local celebrity with his clients going out of their way to repay him for his work, even providing him free services, saying that if he needed anything from their shops or places of business, he'd get it for free. He's like the godfather. He was recognized when he went out with his family, with people stopping him to tell him how much he had changed their lives, and through word of mouth alone, family physical therapy was able to grow into a second location. Colcaster is a small town, so for a small business to require two locations is a big deal. Megan was a yoga instructor, which helped them get more clients and made her even more of a staple in the community as well. Tony and Megan were doing great. With their businesses thriving and their reputations glowing in the community, and that didn't slow down when they decided to start growing their family. They had three children, Alec, Tyler, and Zoe. And after the birth of Zoe in 2015, Megan decided to take a break from the business and become a stay-at-home mother. She wanted to homeschool the kids and help them pursue their passions. One thing Megan was very interested in was the arts, specifically music. Both Alec and Tyler were taught piano from a very early age and both seen as incredibly gifted musicians. They didn't stop with piano, though, as Alec was also interested in learning violin and Tyler was actually taking folk guitar lessons. As for Zoe, she was too young to learn piano before her untimely death. However, she couldn't wait to start because she truly did love music as well. Because of how hands-on Megan was as a mother, her kids were widely regarded in the community. Their neighbors in Connecticut would talk about how well-behaved Alec, Tyler, and Zoe were and how the boys would go out of their way to help others, which is rare. When it would snow, Alec and Tyler would go to the neighbors' homes without provocation from their parents and ask if anyone needed help shoveling the snow from their driveway. When they would see someone coming home with groceries, they would run over to see if they could help carry the bags. Get the hell away from my bags, children. Megan and Tony would often receive compliments for their children's behavior. The family couldn't seem more perfect if they tried. Sad. Megan was a wonderful mother who gave back to the community. Tony was such a well-respected person that he was treated like a local celebrity and spent his free time coaching youth soccer. Alec, Tyler, and Zoe were seen as the nicest kids in town. Hmm. Everything appeared to be perfect. But that's what Tony wanted people to think. Seeing perfection was more important to Tony than anything else because just like the town of Celebration, Tony's entire life was a fucking facade. However, starting in 2017, that facade would start to crumble. The first crack was in 2017 when, according to Tony, on a vacation to Disney World, Megan was bitten by a bug and was infected with Lyme disease. Mm. So according to the CDC, Lyme disease is transmitted to humans through the bite of an infected black leg tick. Typical symptoms include fever, headache, fatigue, and a skin rash. If left untreated, infection can spread to the joints, the heart, and the nervous system. However, most cases of Lyme disease can be treated successfully within a few weeks of antibiotics. Mm. 
According to Tony, on one of the family's multiple trips to Disney World, a place they loved, by the way, Megan had been bitten by a tick and infected. In further statements, he would give to both the police and later to his father, he would say that this case of Lyme's disease was more severe than any other case and that it would cause Megan to lose a significant amount of weight and that they had sought treatment from multiple doctors only to be told that there was no help for Megan. Megan was said to be in a tremendous amount of pain, unable to get herself out of bed, take care of the children, or really do anything forced to rely on Tony for practically everything. This led Tony to, quote, dedicate his life to trying to find the cure, (laughs) end quote. (laughs) Now, from what I found, there is no proof of any of this being true. Because of Megan's diagnosis, she and Tony decided to move their entire family from Connecticut to Florida, more specifically, Celebration, Florida. Tony claimed this decision was made solely because of Megan's faltering health and the fact that she believed that being in a warmer climate would be good for her. In testimony given by her family, they also spoke of Megan believing that having the Magic Kingdom in their backyard would be good for field trips, making homeschooling a bit easier. So, with all of this in mind, evidently Megan and Tony made the decision to put their Connecticut home on the market and move into the Disney Channel and buy a smaller condo in celebration. Hmm. Despite selling their house and the entire family moving states away, Tony would continue to work in Connecticut at his two physical therapy clinics alone. He would work Tuesday through Friday, fly to Florida on Friday night, stay with his family during the weekend, and then fly back to Connecticut on Monday uh, to work on Tuesday again. Hmm. So while in Connecticut, he would either stay with his family at a hotel or at times he'd even stay in his offices sleeping on the floor. To the outside world, everything still seemed fine. People thought it was an odd arrangement, especially when Tony and Megan decided to rent out a separate home alongside their condo in celebration, when during half the week, Tony would be sleeping at his workplace, but they respected Tony and Megan, so whatever questions they had, they kept it to themselves. Mm -hmm. Tony stated this move had been good for the family. However, there was a noticeable shift in Megan and the kids. In Colchester, Megan had been a staple in the community. She had worked as a yoga instructor, she'd been active in the community, and everyone knew her as a positive, calming woman that you could always count on if you needed a hand. She and her kids were always out and about, but upon moving to Celebration, she became more reserved. Her neighbors didn't see her very much, and they didn't know much about her. The same thing occurred with the boys. While they were in Connecticut, their neighbors loved them, stating they were kind and always going above and beyond. Uh, to help others. And when they weren't doing that, they were outside playing, making friends, and, well, just being kids. However, although their neighbors in celebration thought they were very nice, they didn't know them very well. They were rarely seen, and they didn't interact much with others and basically just kept to themselves. The move seemed to shift the family radically, and it appeared to be in a negative way. Of course, Megan could have been sick, which would account for the change in her behavior, but it seemed like the entire family was affected and no one seemed to know why for what it's worth tony seemed his regular self back in connecticut he was still talkative and engaging and his patients still had the utmost respect for him he even went so far as to buy a one hundred thousand dollar treadmill to do hydrotherapy for some of them showing his willingness to go above and beyond damn so whatever cracks were showing in florida weren't present in connecticut however 
that stopped being the case in 2019. People started to notice a change in Tony. Megan and the family were still in Florida, basking in the sun and living 10 minutes away from Disney World. However, Tony wasn't doing so well. Hmm. He had put on a considerable amount of weight and, according to his own testimony, had been diagnosed with diabetes and the once confident, engaging, energetic man was now coming across as reserved and stressed. His patients noticed the change, with him spending less and less time with them and more and more time on his phone. Hmm. He was no longer attentive or caring, asking them questions to get to the bottom of what was going on. He was in his own world, it seems, stressing about Candy Crush. whatever was on the other end of his phone, Candy Crush. uncaring about the person in front of him. It was so apparent that one patient called him out on his behavior, only for Tony to physically recoil and state that he's just a bit stressed and overworked. Between the two storefronts, his wife's illness, his own diabetes diagnosis, his crazy work schedule, and the fact that he didn't have a place to live half the week, it was understandable to most that he'd been a little bit anxious. What wasn't understandable was why he had been charging his clients for care they hadn't gotten on days when he wasn't even in the office. Hmm. In April of 2019, the FBI started investigating Tony for fraud. Hmm. They had been alerted to possible fraudulent activity from his business. When a concerned client had reported that their insurance had been billed for months of care that they had never received, and thousands of dollars had been charged to their insurance. This was by no means an isolated incident either. Many of Tony's clients, the people who revered him and spoke about him so incredibly high, had been purposely overcharged by his clinic to the amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. And given that everything had to be run through his patient's insurance, many people remained ignorant about the fact that he was stealing money at all. Yeah. Tony had spent the better part of his career double, sometimes triple, billing his patients. Dick. Stealing their money and pocketing the rest in order to pay for his lifestyle. Living in Disney World. A Living in yeah. the Disney Channel. A lifestyle that included renting two properties right outside of Disney World, multiple vacations to Disney World and Disney Parks. Mm. Frequent flights in and out of Florida and more. He did all that work just so he could fucking. It's like I got a churro. I can hang out with Goofy and Mickey Mouse and I fucking. I get pictures with the kids. <laughs> to the outside world, it just appeared that Tony was an incredibly successful man whose career allowed him to live an opulent life. Mm. But in reality, he was ripping people off. He was stealing what he could from whom he could, with the hopes that no one would notice. Mm. He was living an incredibly luxurious lifestyle, one that he could by no means afford. But it was much more important for him to make people think that he was doing amazing than to come clean about his actions. And also to hang out with Goofy every weekend. <laughs> Despite his overcharging, taking on multiple loans and more, Tony still didn't have enough money to dig himself and his business out of the hole that he had dug. Mm. When his employees would try and cash their checks every week, they would bounce due to insufficient funds on his end. Damn. He would always blame the bank or say that there was just an error and they should try again, but it was clear to see something was very wrong. Mm. More and more of his employees started to notice how stressed and scared Tony seemed, and they knew something had to be wrong. The FBI started investigating Tony in early April of 2019, and that's where they found countless cases of fraud attached to his medical practice, with him obviously charging clients after they had finished their treatments and overcharging people for things they didn't need. But that wasn't all. 
They also found that Tony was being sued by two New York investment firms who had lent him money. He was hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Mm. His entire livelihood was at risk of falling apart. And even more, it seemed that the world was catching on to his fraud, although it's unlikely he knew the FBI was investigating him. From his demeanor alone, it was clear to see that he thought his deceit was catching up with him, at which point he started talking to Megan about moving to Florida full time, starting a practice there and leaving Connecticut behind. And he thought about renting out the Magic Kingdom, like that, the big <laughs> castle. Yeah, like, as their live, home. I'm going to live in that right uh-huh. spire. And the eastern spire, mm-hmm. this is our life. It'll be great. Goofy will be there. <laughs> However, these conversations never went any further because in early December of 2019, the FBI showed up at Tony's family physical therapy practice looking for evidence and to speak to Tony. At first, when the FBI questioned Tony, he played dumb and tried to deny any responsibility. He maintained his innocence and spoke about how it was probably just a mistake, something that in a week or so they could laugh at over a beer. He hadn't meant to charge the client that so many times. It was probably just a processing error. Hmm. There's no way he'd defraud his customers. Hmm. He was Tony Tote. (laughs) He was the Tony Tote. He wouldn't do that. However, as the interrogation continued... Like, and Tony, he totally would. He's done it his whole career. That's actually his whole entire <clears throat> fortune. As it continued and Tony was made aware of just how long the FBI had been investigating and just how much they actually knew, Tony admitted that he knowingly and willingly did everything they had accused him of. Mm. He had knowingly charged his patients for appointments they never went to. He had charged them for services that they never needed. And he had been charging their insurance providers with the hopes that they would never notice. The FBI asked point blank how this all began. And Tony stated that he did it because it had been easier to overcharge to make up for his debts than to properly earn the money. And when asked if he had been living above his means, Tony agreed. (laughs) During this interrogation, Tony maintained that he had acted alone and that his employees didn't know anything about what he had done. And most importantly, his wife had no idea that this was going on, Hmm. which actually made sense as she'd been living in Florida for two years at this point and hadn't been with the company since her daughter was born. Megan somehow being in charge of processing appointments, handling the money, or even being aware of any of this was incredibly unlikely, if not impossible. Tony admitted to the FBI what he had done and told them that he was going to be taking the rest of December off for the holiday season. He was also very straightforward with them and told him that he was spending the season in Florida. Now, because his family was in Florida, he had ties to the community and didn't appear to be a flight risk. The FBI stated that they would follow up with him after the holiday when he was back in town and made plans with him as to when that would be, at which point they left. Hmm. Tony tried to play off the FBI raid as a big misunderstanding to his staff and the patients that were present. That this was something that would be easily cleared up, but according to the people who were there, he seemed out of sorts. He was pale, shaken, and seemed completely out of sorts, and his employees were hardly comforted when he told them that he'd get it taken care of. Some even put together this that this had something to do with money and their paychecks, but they had no way of knowing just how crumbled Tony's facade had become. And though the majority of people didn't know it, that day, when Tony stood in front of his employees and clients, pale and shaking, people saw the real him. No longer confident and caring, 
but weak, scared, and unsure what to do. Tony had been exposed for the first time in his life, and he knew it. After the FBI left his office, Tony was out the door. His lies had caught up to him, and he was quick to make his getaway, and that would be the last time any of his employees, family, or friends would actually see Tony in person. For the first time since they moved in 2017, Tony and Megan made the decision to stay in Florida for Christmas. Because of the beautiful winter in Connecticut and the fact that they both had family near, they always made the trip up to Colchester during the winter. But surprisingly, in 2019, they opted to stay in Florida. A couple of reasons were given for this, both by Tony and allegedly by Megan. Evidently, Megan was seemingly too sick to travel, and they wanted to stay in Florida because she wanted to use her, their surroundings, specifically one location in her curriculum for their homeschooling. Hmm. The later reason directly went against the first reason, but neither was really the truth. Mm -hmm. So according to multiple sources, Megan had also had a slight falling out with her mother as well. So many thought the reason they weren't going to be venturing back had something to do with that. Regardless, their plans were to stay in Florida and at some point in the new year, travel up to Connecticut to go visit their relatives. However, after Tony left that night, things seemed to take a turn. After Tony had arrived in Florida, Megan sent a text to their family stating that the entire family had come down with the flu and they were too sick to talk on the phone. Megan seemed to emphasize this fact that no one would be able to talk to them except through text, even on the holidays. Their extended family was concerned, of course, because an entire family being too sick to even call and say Merry Christmas was a bit alarming. However, they weren't aware of the true horror that had befallen their relatives. A week before Christmas, Tony texted the family again, stating that Megan and the kids and himself would be going, quote, off the grid and turning off their phones for the time being, meaning that absolutely no other members of the family would be able to contact them. He also stated that Megan had already lost her phone, so they wouldn't be able to talk to anyone anyway with the exception of himself. Again, this was concerning to the extended family, but they didn't really know what to think at this point. As time went on, Chrissy, Tony's sister, became exceedingly concerned about her family. The last time they heard from Megan, who or who they assumed was Megan, mm-hmm. she had stated that they were all too sick to talk. That the entire family was so ill that they wouldn't even be able to speak to anyone. (laughs) And now her brother was saying that they were going off the grid and would not be able to talk to anyone for quite some time. This is not normal behavior, and she'd been concerned about her brother for a while anyway. So on December 29th, four days after Christmas, and 13 days after she got that text from Tony, Christy called the local sheriff's department in Florida asking them to do a welfare check on the family. She was concerned something was wrong and advised the police of the odd circumstance, specifically that they had said that they were very sick and she was scared something had happened to them. The sheriff went out to the home, but found nothing out of place and the home seemingly empty. They knocked on the door, announced themselves, walked around the perimeter, but sensed no movement in the home, saw unopened mail on the porch, and seeing as they had no reason to expect foul play, they left the home. Mm -hmm. This was not the helpful update that Chrissy had wanted. Mm. However, 
She remembered that the home uh, was only one of two properties that her brother and Megan had owned. So she called back to the police and asked them to check on the condo as well. Just like before, the police went out to the Paradise condo, uh, knocked on the door and waited. Sensing no movement and seeing no signs of foul play, they left again and they saw nothing out of the ordinary. Nothing seemed amiss. Everything was locked and secured and seeing it was against the law to enter a home without probable cause, they left. Law enforcement did their best to ease Chrissy's worries using her own account of the situation and reminding her her brother and his family usually traveled during the holidays. Hmm. Them not being home made sense. And they themselves had stated that they didn't want to be contacted. Off the grid. They tried to assure her that this was much more likely, that they were just away for the holidays and would be back soon, given the state of the house. Eight days later, Chrissy received a text from her brother's phone. Only it wasn't her brother who sent it. Her brother's phone was found in a Starbucks in Sarasota, Florida by an unknown stranger. And this stranger was able to unlock it. And upon seeing the messages from Chrissy, reached out to see if they could give it back to the person it belonged to. At the same time this was happening, a neighbor of Tony's reached out to Chrissy, telling her that there was now an eviction notice on the family's door. Chrissy tried to get in contact with the family once more, but was met with radio silence. Then she got another disturbing call, this time from the FBI. Tony had told the FBI that he would be back after Christmas in late December or early January with his lawyer to discuss what he had done while Tony later said he thought he'd gotten off with a slap on the wrist and said as much, said as much to the people in Mm -hmm. his life. He was actually looking at two years in federal prison and was made aware of that by the FBI in his initial interrogation. However, it was January and they hadn't been able to contact Tony. His business still had signs on the windows stating that he would be back in the new year. His employees had no idea where he was, and they were growing more and more concerned as time went on and the FBI couldn't get a hold of Tony. They started to worry that he had possibly fled the country in order to try and get away with his crimes, and they had started to reach out to his family and friends to see if they knew where he was. However, Tony hadn't spoken to any of them about the FBI situation. People in his office that day knew, but otherwise his family, friends, the people who were closest to him, they had no idea how deeply in trouble Tony was. And upon hearing about it, suddenly the text from Tony stating he and his family were going off grid, that they were all too sick to call and couldn't be seeing them for a while, those messages took on a darker undertone. Mm -hmm. Chrissy was shocked to hear from the FBI and upon hanging up the phone, started calling her family and friends to try and figure out where Tony was and when people had actually spoken to the family last. She stressed the importance of talking to the family, not just Tony and not just text messages. And as she continued to talk to Tony's friends and family, she was met with the horrifying reality that no one had spoken to Tony since December 28th. Chrissy, once again, fearing the worst for her family, decided to reach out to the police in Florida, asking them to do another welfare check on them. This time, she let them know that Tony was under investigation by the FBI, the kids and mom had been sick, and that no one had heard from them since the 28th. And just like before, the police went to the home again, only to find it just like before, completely quiet, no sign of life, no probable cause to enter. The eviction notice was still on the door, unmoved. 
The mail was still on the ground, untouched, and it seemed as if there was no movement inside the house whatsoever. It seemed impossible for there to be people inside, with how quiet and dark it was, and the police relayed this to Chrissy. She then called back the next three days, January 10th, the 11th, and the 12th, and still the police said the same thing. There's no one home. They're probably on vacation. It wasn't until the 13th that any progress was made. On January 13th, three FBI agents traveled from Connecticut to Florida in order to apprehend Tony. They had a warrant out for his arrest and immediately went to his home in celebration where they planned to stake out the house until they could confirm that Tony was there. They didn't have to wait long, though, because early that morning, Tony shuffled out of his home, walking slowly, shaking with every step, and he sat on the porch. Hmm. He sat outside for a good while before standing back up and walking back inside, but the agents got a good enough look at him to confirm that this was their man, alive and well, and that's all they needed to take him in. Mm -hmm. The agents then called for backup, requesting some officers come to the house just in case there was a struggle. When two officers arrived, they made their way up to the door the same way the police had come the past three days, and they knocked, announcing themselves, and waited for a reply. And just like before, they were met with silence. It seems like no one was there and the house was empty or abandoned and they had not, and had they not seen Tony that morning, they would have left, but they knocked again, announcing themselves once more and stated that they were just going to come in. The agents unlocked the door themselves, having previously gotten the key from Tony's landlord and walked in immediately slapped in the face by the scent of decomposition. The home was dark, with the windows completely shut and the blinds drawn. The house looked dreary and so unlike the dreamy space Disney had designed it to be. After they had entered the home, they saw a dark figure at the top of the stairs, shuffling down, muttering incoherently to himself. The agents quickly recognized the figure as Tony and asked him where the kids were. Tony, still rambling to himself, stated he didn't know where they were, probably at a friend's house. And when he asked, when they asked where Megan was, he shouted up the stairs as if to alert her that they had company. He let them know that she was sleeping in the master bedroom upstairs and would probably be down in a minute. He shakily made his way down the stairs, declining their offers of assistance, uh, and was apprehended once he reached the bottom. Meanwhile, the agents walked up the stairs toward the room where he stated Megan was, and that's where they found the family. The first thing they saw was a pair of feet sticking out from under a pile of blankets on the bed, Mm. already decomposing. Yikes, fuck. God, gross. It was Megan. She was exactly where Tony stated she was, in bed, but she wasn't sleeping. Laying on the mattress on the floor next to their mother were the two boys, Mm. Alec and Tyler, under blankets holding crucifixes against their chests. Oh, my goodness. On the ground was their dog, Breezy. What? And on the bed near the mother's feet laid the already decomposed body of Zoe, their four-year-old daughter. Zoe had decomposed so much that upon the initial search of the home, they were unable to find her body. They thought that Tony had hidden it or placed it away from the rest of the family. However, she'd been placed near her mother's feet and just had been missed due to how little of her remained. The family had died before Christmas, upwards of two weeks before the arrest, and Tony had lived with their bodies 
lived with his family, dead and decomposing the entire time. He hadn't left the house. He hadn't gone out after killing them or tried to flee. He simply killed them and stayed there, living with their bodies as if nothing happened. That's insane. After they had found the bodies of Tony's entire family, Tony admitted to the police that he had taken a large amount of Benadryl in order to kill himself. He stated he wanted to be with his family in the afterlife, and he had been hoping that by the time the police found him, he would be gone. Because of that admission, instead of taking Tony straight to jail, he was instead taken to the hospital to make sure that his attempt on his own life didn't work. It was at the hospital that he admitted to killing his whole family and went into detail how he did it. It was also discovered that the amount of Benadryl he had taken wasn't a lethal dose, which led the police to doubt the attempt on his own life had been real, especially given the amount of drugs he had given his sons before their deaths. While with the police in the hospital, Tony stated that he and Megan had been planning to kill their children for months, that they had both planned on killing the children and then themselves in a suicide pact. This was because they wanted to be with their children in the afterlife and because, according to Tony, Megan had become very spiritual within the last few months of her life and thought the end of the world was coming. He stated that he stabbed his two sons, Alec and Tyler, and suffocated his daughter, Zoe. After he had killed their children, he claimed that his wife then stabbed herself in the stomach but didn't die. She then took an unhealthy amount of Tylenol PM laid on the bed and told Tony to smother her, which he did directly after. He also stated that he killed the children in separate rooms and had moved them into the master bedroom after they had gotten out of rigor. He then staged their bodies next to each other in the way that he planned to do with Megan while she was still alive. He then attempted to kill himself, but didn't succeed. However, none of this accounts for the weeks he spent inside the home with the bodies. Right. His recollection of events and how his family died does match up with what happened according to the autopsies done on his family. However, because of the severe decomposition, it can only be determined that Zoe was killed of homicidal violence, the specifics of which are not known. Megan, Tyler, and Alec had all been stabbed in their stomachs and found to have Benadryl in their system. With Alec, the oldest having the smallest amount in his. Now, while we don't know why this occurred, it is widely speculated that Alec was the first person that Tony attacked with the intention to kill and was able to fight back, which can be seen in the defensive wounds on Tony's hands and his body. In his final moments, he scratched and clawed at his dad, but was overpowered. After he passed, it's thought that Tony had the remainder of the family take the Benadryl to make the killings easier for him. Hmm. That's simply speculation, but given the evidence left on Tony and the lack of Benadryl in his eldest son's system, it's what's most believed happened. After Tony was released from the hospital and placed in jail to await his trial, Tony recanted his admission, stating that he had no memory of what he had done and that he was not of sound body or mind when he had been originally questioned. Despite the fact that he knew things that only the killer would have known, the fact that he lived with his family's dead bodies for so long they started to decompose around him. That's a big tip off. He was now claiming his own innocence. 
stating Megan had killed the children and then herself and that he had been in a fugue state after completely traumatized. Hmm. Tony stated his initial confession was made while he was under duress directly after a suicide attempt and that he was essentially had no idea what he was talking about. He then went further to claim that he had no idea and absolutely no memory of what happened between when he arrived in Florida to the week after he entered prison. He's gone back and forth on this statement saying he has no memory of certain events, then going on to talk about them in extreme detail. Tony has continued to make various statements like this one to various people, all of which negate previous statements or built upon them, but it's unclear what really happened. Hmm. According to one of Tony's statements, Megan asked him to go to their condo to retrieve a necklace for Zoe. So he went over to the condo. However, he forgot his key. And rather than return to the house to grab it, he stayed at the condo for upwards of two hours looking for it. He then went back home where Megan was presumably killing the children and then got a crowbar. He then returned to the condo used the crowbar to open the door and spent the next couple of hours looking in earnest for the Mickey Mouse necklace. He couldn't find it, but was so exhausted from his search that he accidentally fell asleep on the, co- on the couch in the condo, only to wake up the next morning and return home. When Tony returned home, he found that Megan had killed the children using what he classified as a Benadryl pudding pie. Oh my God. She had killed the kids and told Tony that she was going to be killing herself as well. Now, when questioned as to why he didn't just call the police to get his family medical attention, Tony stated that he couldn't because she had hidden all the phones. And while he was looking for a phone to get help, he stated he heard Megan stab herself in the stomach. However, this didn't kill her. She instead walked around the house doing various things before stabbing herself once more and then asking Tony to smother her to death. Hmm. Tony stated that she had a pillow in her hand and tried to force him to press it down on her face hard enough that she died. Well, he couldn't do it. According to him, she mocked him for that Hmm. before she finally died. With the the knife wound? Right, I guess. So this entire statement cannot be true. No. When the police had gone to the condo to do a welfare check on the family, they found no signs of a break-in and nothing to give them probable cause to think anything was wrong. If Tony had entered the condo the way he said he did, using a crowbar instead of a key, Mm -hmm. there would be damage to the door and evidence of a break-in leading the police to enter. However, we know this wasn't the case. It also cannot be true because later, when Tony was in prison, a family member went to the condo in order to pack some of the family's things and they found the necklace Tony was looking for. Mm, It was exactly where Tony stated he had looked, meaning that it was unlikely he looked for it at all. It was also unlikely to be true because medications like Benadryl lose their potency and effectiveness when they're put to any extreme temperature. So if Megan were to bake Benadryl into a pie, the way Tony stated, that would require it to be put in an oven at extreme temperatures. And if it was a pudding pie, that requires then uh, for it to be refrigerated in the extreme cold, meaning the effectiveness of this poison pie would be extremely weak. The story also doesn't account for the reason why Tony had defensive marks all over his hands and neck, presumably from killing his eldest son. 
Tony then changed his story again to state that he had gone to the condo and simply fallen asleep in the car outside due to his own exhaustion from having to take care of Megan. Oh, he's the victim. I get it. So... In the run-up to the trial, there have been uh, there have only been two further statements given by Tony himself. One in the form of a phone call he had with his sister Chrissy, and a letter he sent to his father Robert. And his statements conflict and change in both of these these statements. First, the phone call is more in line with statements that Tony had previously given, all the way up to the crazy mad search for his daughter's necklace. Megan told him where to look. And he had evidently tore the place apart looking for it. So much so that he exhausted himself and fell asleep over a fucking necklace. However, wrong. what's interesting is the fact that Chrissy, she's the one that went later to the condo to pack up the family's belongings. She was able to quickly locate that Mickey Mouse necklace and that Tony had spent hours looking for. Mm-hmm. She found it exactly where he said Megan told him to look. So... Mm. That's making it unlikely he had spent any time at all in the condo looking for it himself. Right. Well, he hasn't been truthful at this right. point at all. The guy, really. yeah, it's just ridiculous. Additionally, Tony did write a letter to his father, Robert Tote, explaining what had happened and why he did what he did. This retelling conflicts greatly with all of the other versions of events that he has given. This letter had to be screened by the police and was leaked to the press in full. It contains Tony's newest version of events and gives better insight into the kind of man he was. Dipshit. Now, this letter can be found on the internet in its entirety, and if you're interested in reading it, go ahead and look for it. Nope. I thought about covering it here. Actually, um, I had it in this script. And I cut that part of the story out because it absolutely enraged me. And I went on a verbal fucking onslaught for almost three pages of writing, just (laughs) bashing every sentence of this stupid narcissistic letter. Right. So I I got rid of it. Okay. Um, Yeah. Anywho. We'll talk about it at the end, maybe. Maybe. So the trial began in December of 2021, and it ended in April of 2022. After only six hours of deliberation... Anthony Tote was found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder and one count of animal cruelty. Good. Quote, a jury has unanimously determined after listening to the evidence that you, Anthony John Tote, are a destroyer of worlds. End quote. Circuit Judge Keith A. Karsten said. Tote was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the killings of his four family members. Megan Tote. 42 and the couple's children alec 13 tyler 11 and zoe 4 in a landmark move one year of additional incarceration was added to his sentence for animal cruelty charges stemming from his killing of the family dog breezy good i mean sad but these murders have forever shattered the facade that surrounds celebration florida What was thought as a near utopian society built by people at Disney is forever connected to this heinous crime. And that is a stain that will never wash out. Sheesh. All right. Well, let's talk about it on the other side of this. Well, let's see what our dipshits think about this. eh? Yeah. All right. So the obvious question to start this with is, (laughs) Uh uh, does enjoying the Disney company's uh, products and materials (laughs) drive a percentage of people insane? (laughs) And are they all living in places like Celebration, Florida, where they're like, just get me next to Goofy. I just, I want my kids to graduate next to Goofy. I need Donald Duck involved with the judicial process. It's, you know, I, I described Celebration, Florida 
this town because it it creeped me out. It reminds me of a movie called Pleasantville. Yes. Yeah, where it's all black and white. Yeah, it's just, just all, it creeped know, me out. Picturesque. So kind of digging a little bit into it. I mean, I understand the plan uh, and the premise. Mm-hmm. And I get the, the this utopian idea and how beautiful it is. Sure. But we're human and mm. we're messy and we're flawed and we fuck up. Now, if it sounds too good to be true. Having something that is seemingly perfect, mm. um, although it's nice to aspire to, it's it, it will not exist because humans. Right. And well. the town creeped me out, although I think it would be pretty to look at, mm-hmm. just like Disneyland is nice to visit. Yeah, it's a really um, nice plan. It looks really cool. It's just not, it's, it's not workable. And this just goes to show you that bad shit happens no matter where you live. Yeah, no matter how much you try and plan for it. Or- right. So I, you know, I, I may have been a little harsh in my description, but... It may it really creeped me out this idea that I mean I love a nice yard and beautiful flowers just like your anyone else mm-hmm. I really do I can appreciate wow that's a pretty you know that's a beautiful yeah, and uniform thing yeah. where you're like oh wow look at yeah. a whole row of it pleases my uh, OCD when yeah, things it, look nice that's what it feels like that what Walt Disney was doing he's like I need things to be fucking right. round <laughs> I need circles I need fucking perfect things I don't want any fucking off things right and and I get that but. I think if I drove down a street and everything was absolutely pristine, right at one, right after another, and everyone is waving from the street, and I think I'd be creeped out. Yeah. I really do. And if I woke up in the morning and, or, you know, at two o'clock in the morning or whatever, and go out to have a fucking cigarette on my porch and the birds are singing and they're, you know, it's a small world, <laughs> I'd probably be like, what the fuck yeah. is going on? Very much Truman Show. Right. That, that movie ruined me for all that stuff in the yeah. future anyway where it's like what's going on here right, I, right did right. i wake up in a fucking exactly exactly so really weird i look really at you creepy. i look at you funny i'm like is that my real wife is she an actor <laughs> that's you know what am i like i think i'm important that's, well you that's get how like silly and delusional I it get. seems like every quarter you wake up to a different version of your wife so mm-hmm. yeah it's like oh wow it's langley's like, oh, well, a little touchy feely lately little, my little, goodness a little different <laughs> <laughs> Now she's in the yard fucking burying bodies. I don't know. It's a different version every other quarter. It's a weird, weird times. Uh, but I got a question for you. Okay. So we, you edited out lots. Oh, my one. gosh. Yes, I and, did. And I don't want to get you started too hard because I know that you, this fired you up like hardcore. You came from in your office. You came out into <laughs> yep. the foray screaming and yelling and yep. shouting at the cast. Well, you know, so... I, I, Unhinged wife. No, in my in my research of these of these episodes that I do, uh, some people bother me more than others, and some people are just so fucking out there that it's it's abhorrent and it's very disturbing. But there are some that are extremely frustrating to me, and these are the individuals. I think I'm seeing a pattern in myself. Their name um, Tony. No, No, it's, I have an issue with individuals, men or women, husbands or wives. It doesn't matter. I have an issue with people who abuse others that love them and respect them and trust them. Mm -hmm. I have a Mm -hmm. really big problem with injustice at its core. And when you put your love and your trust into an individual, like your husband or your wife, and they use it against you mm-hmm. and they take even hurt you or take your life that 
frustrates me beyond frustration when children are yeah, involved. Yeah, the little kids. It amps it up that much more. Your children, you they they're here to become future adults, right? They're young untrained adults uh, to put it loosely. And they trust you. Mm-hmm. Like your dog, Breezy, that dog trusted him. Mm-hmm. And he abused all of that trust, and it it was infuriating. But what really pushed me over the edge was the fact that he was blaming his wife for this stuff. And in this letter, so, okay, let's go back a little bit further. In the interrogation, Mm -hmm. watching this guy and the way he behaves in his interrogation, this is also online. Uh, The listeners can look it up on YouTube. Take a look. There's several versions, but it's all the same. There's just, you know, different people talking over him. But during his interrogation, he tried to play off that he was uh, mentally unstable that uh, for because he was going to try for an insanity plea. Right. There's nothing wrong with this guy because other than being a psycho. Well, other than just being fucked in the head. Yeah. He couldn't go for an insanity plea. Because of many, many fucking reasons. One being that I noticed as a person who I don't even know what the fuck I'm talking about. But just watching this guy, he seems to remember minute details, but he can't remember what he did for like three days straight. But he can remember exactly where this necklace was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, he can't remember what he did to his family yet gets offended when the police call him out um basically make an assumption a medical assumption so there's in his and i can't remember the exact detail of it but at one point he's talking about something and the police make a medical uh assumption about something that he said Mm -hmm. and he looks at them like (laughs) You fucking peon. You don't even know what you're talking about. Because of the medical terminology. Exactly. And he corrected them. He remembered that. So, you know, (laughs) it's just, it's really, he's, he thinks he's smart enough to go for insanity, but he's not smart enough to actually go for insanity. Right. For one. Two, in the letter that he wrote to his dad, it's pages and pages long. And the blame and the shame that he put on his family was awful family what other i mean okay his, i can see him i can see him shoveling everything wife, on the wife That's, his he shoveled on his wife can't blame he any blamed of the he blamed his dad and he went through how he didn't want to forgive his dad and he's doing his best and he blames his dad for uh his mistakes that he's made in his life all the way down to what he did from the fbi he blames his patience for visiting him basically and this is all it's not outright it's passive aggressive but when uh, like you, it's their own fault for fucking and not he knowing didn't, I was a monster he didn't say those things at all but that's what's implied when mm. you read the letter um he just basically blows himself up about how he's a good guy and he says it he's a good husband because he didn't call the police uh, when his wife was hurting the children because he wanted to honor his wife's wishes. Uh, it's it's really, Hope he really... Didn't write, well, I'm a good father because, you know, it, he, the time had come. He, he basically wanted to, everyone to know what a good father and a good husband he was. The other thing this is, is... This is so new that it's so sensitive. I, forgive me if I'm a little flippant with stuff. I, you know. This is a very new case. Well, the other part about uh, this letter was he... 
he introed the letter by saying, I don't want anyone to read this. Hmm. Uh, he wrote this letter out to his his dad, typed it, basically. Or maybe he wrote, I can't remember if he typed it or wrote it. But anyways, he had an injured hand. Because when the police took him down, uh, they did it too rough. And he's hmm. innocent, remember? Right. And they hurt him. Um, and he's injured. And, and he's... It, and he used words like experiencing uh, excruciating pain while I'm writing. So forgive me if this is blah, blah, blah. Anyways, bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, he told his dad, don't share this with anybody except for your wife, because um, this is a private personal letter. Fucking dude knew that everything that leaves gets inspected. Yeah, absolutely. And the narrative that he spun in this letter was, first of all, unbelievable, completely unbelievable, over the top. He thinks he's so fucking smart. Right. He's, he's like, not. don't let anybody see this. Wait. Right. I'm going to give you the real truth. Knowing Wink. it was going to be leaked and knowing that it was, this is all before the court case. He's trying to like fix this thing. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness he's a fucking idiot because like nobody it. fell for it. Right. You know, so... That letter, uh, uh, I got rid of so much because I would, I, I do a lot of my stuff through narration mm-hmm. and voice text, basically. <laughs> and I have to go Not back a lot of and, and, stuff. and edit, you know, for, so my script is, is legible and readable for myself. Right. And I stopped. I'd read like two or three sentences and I'd be like, oh, fuck, what? <laughs> and then I'd go off on this thing. <laughs> what a fucking idiot. I hate people like this. And then I'd go on <laughs> and go back to his letter and be like, oh, God. So I had to get rid of a bunch of stuff. Okay. Well, give us an example of something that, that you automatically just were like, no. All, all of the like, things. But what I, you just said, I for sure, shared it with you. I shared it with those you. Those were all the things that you're just like, no way. No fucking way. Yeah. The main thing was what a good husband he was. Okay. And I mean, and, and he's how, talking how, what about. What did it sound like? Like, he's like, dad, I'm so good. But I'm not as good as I could be because of you. And also, please send money. No, <laughs> okay. So what about. Okay, so what I'll do is I'm just going to read the first couple of sentences of this letter. You're going to get the feel just from the first few sentences. Okay, was it going to set you off? Uh, maybe, okay. maybe. Right, here so here we go. This is the letter. This is how it begins. Please excuse the impersonal nature of printing in this letter, but seeing as it's too excruciatingly painful to write legible script, it will have to do. I'll explain later. I have recently been released off of a suicide watch as I was placed due to the circumstances horrific as they were in December of 2019 that the media and the sheriff's department here are making me out to be the next butcher of Baghdad. Thanks to the counseling here and my sister, I'm beginning to resemble the proud and strong man I was prior to the incident, which shattered me beyond comprehensible ways. Holy shit. I remain in isolated, protected custody to protect me as I am not jail material and to protect my case. I I write to you in response to the letters I received from you to correct all the inaccuracies created and generated by the creative writing machine, the press, to sell papers in the shares department who want to score a big win after screwing up a prior murder case that the governor of Florida had to intervene and move it out of the district to respond to your absurd allegations in your last letter. This is to his father, by the way. Yeah. And to offer you forgiveness. 
Oh. First of all, I am 10,000% innocent of all these preposterous charges, both on the state case and on the proposed Medicaid fraud case. The statements taken from me were interesting, to say the least. I'm writing to you in confidence. Please do not share with anyone but your wife, as I need to be shown as I need not be shown off as a trophy again, nor do I need to contend with the results of the telephone game when it comes to testify in a couple of months. Please do not break my confidence before continuing. It is important to note that despite Tony... Te- okay, anyways. So, it's me <laughs> on going... And yeah, on the, exactly. I'm a kick-ass. And, I, and, and he talks about this. So, anyways. Okay. Yeah, all right, thank you. You're welcome. But that, it's fucking... And it's seven pages of that Seven pages. And that's in pages. That's our pages. I've got it in pages, yeah. yeah. So anyways. That's a lot of words. That's a couple thousand words. I I removed it because, uh, yeah, excruciating pain, but he typed fucking ten pages. Mm. Or he wrote. He printed it. Hmm. Well, uh, fuck him. Uh, (laughs) I hope he... He's still alive, though. He's sitting oh, in jail. And April not- April of 2022, four life sentences plus a year because of animal abuse, because of poor Breezy. Yeah, poor Breezy. And his children and his wife. Of course. Yes. That goes without saying, but wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, four, I, I still don't get over, I can't get over how humans talk about life sentences and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I get there's technical things where a life sentence isn't really a life sentence. There's parole shit. Mm-hmm. But it's like, life sentence, no parole. You don't need an extra life sentence because you can't do. I mean, it's, you get one life. Pretend uh, this is a weird, mm. but mm-hmm. not to not to you know dwell on such silly things. But yeah. so, I mean, we walk away from this guy. We're not doing our meter. Uh, what do you think? I mean, he's a he's a he's just another case of a delusional, narcissistic, sociopathic ass. Right. As far as I'm concerned, and it's probably Disney's fault. <laughs> Right? I mean, they were looking for the Disney key. They're living in the Disney's fucking Disney Channel fucking city. Uh, I mean, things were like, I just need to get to Disneyland. Uh, they, I mean, he went into debt so he could have churros while I know. he was... <laughs> don't I don't worry, know. little Tony. <laughs> you know, shit. I, I, I don't know. That's a weird one. Thank you for bringing it You're to our welcome. attention. I, I've never heard of him before. Most people mm-hmm. haven't heard of this guy because he's not a like you know prolific it's, murderer. It, no, it's, it's these family annihilators. It's these family that, annihilators that, that come in crazy stories and just fucking wipe out their family. Before we end this thing, did it ever seem like he had a guilty conscience? Guilty conscience for stealing money, right? But not guilty conscience for killing his family. Yeah. So what that leads me to believe is he didn't have a guilty conscience for stealing money. He was nervous and anxious because he knew he was going to get caught. And that's why he killed his family. He didn't want his family to know he had fucked up royally. He didn't want to have to present to everybody that he's a total piece of shit. And especially his kids and his wife. That's my my uneducated opinion. That sounds right to me. And... You know, it seems to me that there's a pattern with these uh, family annihilators, uh, specifically the fathers, when they come in and they kill the entire family and some of the mothers, too, that have come in and and killed Mm -hmm. mostly their children. But when they do these things, they're trying to cover up their own faults and their own right. shortcomings. Because so they, they don't have to face them and tell them, yeah, I failed exactly. and it's been alive for 10 years. The thing is, that's... A, a weird thing to me because instead, yeah, nobody likes the discomfort of admitting that you fucked up. 
no one likes to feel judged and no one likes to feel uh, uh, like a failure in any way. That is normal stuff. It's right. normal human shit. We've all experienced it. Uh, none of us want to face it. But is that actually worse than murdering your family? No. That's the mind-boggling part. Yeah. The emotional reaction to shame. It's a lot of shame. That's is, why it's, yeah. is worse than killing your family. I just, I, I, I just don't get it. It's just different it. folk. Let's oh, really? Go round, I guess. <laughs> uh, not necessarily uh, desirable folk. <clears throat> yeah. Well, there's that's our story. Well, thank you for the research. Thank you for yeah. presenting that. I didn't mm-hmm. have much to say because I was just intrigued by. Uh, I can't believe how this world works. There's yep. just some crazy it's shit that happens. Weird place. Beautiful place. Very much so. Really beautiful place. And people, you know, there's a whole bunch of different people out there. People some of that, them suck. Some of them, some, it's not a lot. No, very most, tiny. Most very of them tiny seem percentage. like that they're good. I mean, we people. all kind of suck. Let's well, we're crazy, all human, but, but uh, we're also all very, to, very good and capable of greatness. Right. And suck to this capacity? No, it's very, no, very rare. Yeah. 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 Most I should it. maybe I should bring some good stories to the dipshit files, but then it wouldn't be the dipshit files. No, we can always be the dipshits looking in non dipshit stuff. Right, it's good stuff. All right, that is the end. Uh, how do they get a hold of us? Uh, info at scatcast Okay, where do they find our merch? Well, scatcast.com. Kickass. How do they get on to Patreon <laughs> and uh, join the Patreon? Patreon.com forward slash scatcast. Excellent. And uh, what's the name of the guy that's the shitbox wizard that we thank every week? Uh, the shitbox wizard. Oh, yeah. That's right. His <laughs> Don the shitbox Don wizard. Don the shitbox wizard. Who's the dookie slayer? What's the guy's name? His name is Chris. His yeah. His name is Chris. Chris and and then there's a quartermaster. Yep, there there's is. that guy. His name is Bodie. His name is Bodie. And thank you guys. Mm-hmm. And those guys that are just a little bit. They're the Godhead. Oh, yeah, we think yep, the Godhead. And then there's a guy named Alan. He's got this place. Mm-hmm. He's got the, the place called the Garbage Disposal. Garbage Disposal. And those yeah. are all on Facebook, right? But they are. Fucking yeah. A. All right. You're well, doing well. All right. I feel like I'm not. All right. This is the end. Thank you so much. We'll talk at you in the future. And it'll seem like the present. Bye. Bye. Bing bong. bong.